right. Grateful for Pastor Nick and the elders at this church. Another opportunity to bring you the word of the Lord. I'm always amazed at how you guys could just stand up during the whole message, man. I I feel like a a handicap, like I have to be sitting down, right? Too much too much weight on this body. Yeah, you know, just in preparing for this message in this petition, almost feels like when you're making a meal and you're having family over, it's like you can't even really make an appetizer really for them. You can just kind of give them a few pieces of salad and some dressing. And I know Nick knows what I'm talking about. It's just such a monumental task when you have to break up, you know, verses that go together. And then there's so much more you want to say. It's hard to know what to cut out and what to say. So it takes a lot of time uh, preparing for a message like this. And even my upbringing as a Roman Catholic, I feel that that really does help you understand the Lord's Prayer. Roman Catholics don't get everything wrong. They definitely get justification wrong. And when it comes to prayer, usually you want to run from the hills when you're hearing about Roman Catholics, right? Because of, you know, the heresy, the deep heresy. But surprisingly, there was a lot of biblical exegesis when I read some Catholics. It was very refreshing. And I was just shocked. I was like, well, this is going to be usually a critique, but actually it was worthy enough to put it in the message. So why don't we pray and get started into question 108. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, for your word, Lord, for your truth, Lord, and just for all of your great work, and Father, for your name. Help us to take your name very serious. Help us to take the opportunities that we have to proclaim your name and to realize, Lord, that you have ordained these things and the means that you have given us, Lord, pastors, deacons, elders, Lord, a church. Father, church is for your kingdom and for your king. Father, I pray that you would strengthen me, uh, cut out any dross that may be in this message and cause me to only speak truth. Sanctify your people. Sanctify me, Lord. Uh, help us to glorify your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Question 108. What do we pray for in the first petition? The answer in the first petition, which is hallowed be thy name. We pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he maketh himself known and that he would dispose all things to his own glory. Matthew 6, 9, in this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So my aim tonight will be to demonstrate to you how hallowed be thy name is pretty much synonymous with God being glorified in the earth as the catechism states here. This prayer for God to hallowed his name is a collection of prophecy, typology, and even some parallels. So we won't be able to go into all that just because, you know, we're not going to be here for two hours. But in Martin Luther's, I'm joking already, boy, I got jokes. Keep the momentum going. In Martin Luther's catechism, he stated, it is therefore very necessary 
and should be our prime concern to give the name of God its due honor and to keep it holy and sacred, looking upon it as our greatest and most sacred treasure. Thus, this petition is plain and clear once the expression to hallow is to, is to be understood to mean the same as our idiomatic terms to glorify, to praise, to honor by speech or conduct. There is nothing dearer to him than to hear his praise and glory exalted above everything else and his word taught in its purity and highly valued and treasured. Luther's larger catechism, pages 84 and 85. Luther's comments here are gold. I was going to say platinum, but I think gold is worth more. So they're gold. And really they give teeth to what Hallowed be thy name means. In this first petition, the Lord's Prayer, we're instructed in the Gospels to come to him with a desire as we see Luther, what he states here in this catechism. And I love what he said about it should be our greatest and most sacred treasure. You think about that. We can, sometimes I don't even know if we can really fathom that. It's like just to say God's name and to declare it, that should be our greatest and most sacred treasure. It should. Because as a Christian, we are blessed and privileged to even be able to be ambassadors for God. And so to lift up the name of God is just amazing to me, the study of God's name in Scripture. When you start to study God's name, you really get an understanding of why he takes his name so serious and why we should also. So to hallow, Luther said, was expressing the glory of God's name and make it known by our speech and our conduct. For God's name to be known and to his word to be purely taught. This is why we should take theology so serious. You know, I've had friends where I've sent them the link to our church and they're like, well, you guys are, are so academic and you do this and you do that. And I'm like, well, what should we be? Should we be just this pragmatic church? Like Pastor Nick was saying earlier, I felt like he preached about 40 percent of what I'm going to say tonight anyway. But should we be this pragmatic church like a Furtick or a Joe Osteen where it's just all about man? And everything's just so warm and fuzzy. Or should we really preach Christ, repentance, and judgment to come? Should we encourage the saints? Should we edify the saints? Should we, should we do something different than what God has commanded us to do? I don't think we should. I don't think we should. So when Luther said his word should be purely taught, this is what, how we can actually proclaim God is holy. That's the only way to do that is by staying, remaining faithful to the word, and that's why I'm so grateful for, to be a member of this church. The word Hallowed is translated from the Greek word Hagiadzo, and it's always usually translated as holy. If you look throughout the scriptures, it appears, I know there's some variations in the Greek, I'm not a Greek scholar, but sometimes it appears to be seven times, and then other times it's like four or five, but then when you look at the word, it's actually the same word. So it could actually read like this when he says, hallowed be your name. What God is actually saying is, let your name be declared as holy. And what does holy mean? What does holy mean? It means that God is other. 
It means that God is set apart. He's, he's not like us. He's different. He's, he's, set, he's separate from sinners. And so this should be the desire of every believer to proclaim God's name as holy. And our petitioning to God, even in this, um, I'll read this Roman Catholic uh, catechism. It said here, hallowed is another word for holy or sanctified. When we say hallowed be thy name, we are not only telling God, I recognize that you are holy, but more importantly, we're asking that his name be recognized by everyone throughout the world as being the ultimate holy power. That one day, sooner rather than later, all will know him to be righteous, powerful, and everyone's only one and true God. I was like, wow, Roman Catholics wrote that, right? I was surprised. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised by it. And so we would all agree with that, right? We're like, wow, no heresy here. Actually truth. But I think a lot of times we forget that prior to the sixth century, you know, Romanism was not Romanism. It was just Catholicism. And that would be the universality of the church. So I believe after the sixth century, when they introduced Mary worship and popes, then they became an apostate church. But it doesn't mean that there's still not truth there, right? A broken clock is right twice a day. Well, when you talk to a lot of Roman Catholics, you know, and you listen to guys like Trent Horn, their work on creation and the doctrine of God, classic theism, Roman Catholics are very, very sharp people. And I believe there are some of them who are saved in spite of the inconsistent ones, that is, when it comes to justification. So like I said, when we as God's people are asking God to use us to declare his name as holy, that's what hallowed be thy name is, to proclaim to other sinners that God is other and that there is none like him and he alone is worthy of worship. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So when we think about that, God's holiness is his uniqueness, is his uniqueness. He's different from everything else in the created universe because he is the creator. He's not a creature. And there's none like him, like this verse says, who declares the end from the beginning. There is none that, that can proclaim that their counsel will stand but God, that they will do all their pleasure. Imagine somebody saying that to us. I'm going to do all my pleasure. We say, well, how are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? You know, it's like a couple of weeks ago, um, the Lord gave us this golden nugget of time with my boys where we were talking about the uh, how God is impassable and the impassibility of God. And then sure enough, Pastor Nick starts talking about how God is impassable. Right. And this is a doctrine that I haven't even been familiar with till I came to this church. I've only learned in the last nine, eight or nine months and in studying it. I was just amazed at how it kind of rounds off your theology when you start to study the doctrine of God. That's the only way you can really have a deeper understanding of things about God that we wouldn't know otherwise. So when he was talking about passions, it was 
just such a wonderful analogy because I was just explaining that to my boys and what a great day to bring it up now. My team just got their brains beat out today, right? It's like Clint and I, you see us in the walkway, yeah, go Niners. And then today we're like, man, those guys are bums, right? Well, our passions come on us, but they're subject to change because we're mutable. But God is not given over to passions because he can't learn anything. There's no change in him. He's, he's the same. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever, and tomorrow, right? So there's, there's nothing about God. There's no circumstance that can come upon God where he is not subject to passions. He's not like us. So when you think about God, you think about his faithfulness. It's like we're not faithful. God is faithful, right? One minute we're passionate about something, the next minute we're not. God is not given over to passions. That's why in his faithfulness in Malachi 3, when it says, I am the Lord, your God, he said, therefore, you sons of Jacob, you are not consumed. God is faithful and committed to his eternal mercy for his people. He's not like us. When we get angry, we annihilate someone if, if it weren't for the grace of God. So like I said, no one else can make these claims that God makes. And he's well pleased in that which brings him glory. It is the will of God to glorify himself through his people. God only has one will. It's the will of God for us to give thanks, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And when we thank the Father through Christ, it is the will of the Spirit who works in us, who resides in us, who fosters and nurtures praise on our lips. Okay, it's like that verse in Romans 8. I couldn't remember to put it in here, but when it talks about uh, the groanings and the utterings which cannot be heard, right? That's the work of the Spirit. So the work of the Spirit in us doesn't contradict any other work in the Godhead. When the Spirit points us to worship and glorify Christ, God is glorified. And much of our modern understanding of God is, is rotten because it's gotten away from Theology proper, that's the Trinitarian work of God and understanding who God is. That's why we have all, all this goofy stuff in churches nowadays. Guys coming in on hang, uh, what do you call those things? Zip lines and just all this entertainment stuff. It's like, we don't need that. We, do, we need the word of God and we need faithful men like Timothy, Paul told Timothy, who are able to teach. God has one will, like I said, not conflicting wills. Whoever does the will of God are those who are in covenant with God. Mark 3.35 says, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. I was just having a conversation with um, uh, Mario out there today. We were talking about how our families just completely will cut us off when we preach Christ faithfully to some of them. And I just tried to encourage him and I said, well, you know, that's kind of how it goes, right? Once you stand for Christ, uh, your family is not always going to be on your side, especially if they're not uh, if they're not regenerate people. If they're wicked people, if they're not saved, they're going to be against you. But what did Jesus say here? Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. It's not who looks like me, who's the same skin complexion or ethnicity as me. This is your family right here. This is your family right here, okay, believers. 
Okay? We are the ones who are called to proclaim the name of God. And when the Father, when we do the will of the Father, it's also the will of the Son and the will of the Spirit. We don't say things like, well, that was the Father's will, but that wasn't the Spirit's will. We're talking about one God here. One God, one name okay, that we proclaim at, at a time. Obviously, God has many names. So we simply say, this brings glory to God when we're glorifying God, not part of the Godhead, right? Or this part of the Godhead, not that part of the Godhead. So it is the will of God for us to remain pure, for us to stay away from sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, fleeing sexual immoral things brings glory to God. And when the will of God is being done, we are by his grace expressing our love for him. This demonstrates what Martin Luther was saying about our speech. We are to glorify God when we're asking him, hallowed be your name. We are asking him to glorify himself through his people in word and thought and indeed having a conduct that is aligned in what we are saying. You know, it's like you go to a bunch of wicked people and you start preaching Christ. And then you're living inconsistent with that. And you tell them, hey, you need to be delivered. They're going to turn around and look at you and say, hey, man, I think you need to you need to be delivered. You need to practice what you're preaching. Right. So, you know, let your walk match your talk. And it's what God has commanded us. Right. It says in first Peter one. But as he, he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. That's the same word, hagiadzo. Hallowed, be holy because God is holy. So what was in mind here? Leviticus 19.2, when the Lord had given this imperative to Old Covenant Israel. Okay, our proclamation must match our practice. Very simple. And by preaching and declaring his holiness, his goodness, his wrath, and the fact that he alone is truth. Psalm 115.1 says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy and because of your truth. It is unto the Lord that we are to give glory and not ourselves. Okay, It's easy to get up here and say that. But as soon as Monday rolls around, it's very much easier to give glory to yourself than it is to God. God would not, we would not need God to tell us these things if that wasn't true about us, right? As fallen people. And when he gets glory, it's because he alone as God is the one who we are commanded to make his name great. Not our name, his name. And this was the plan of God from long ago to elevate his name above all other names and to make his name great in this world of his. So before we look at that, let us try to understand a little bit when I was talking about the name of God. So the name of God in the Old Testament scriptures in Hebrew or Aramaic, I don't know whichever one it was. I think it was Hebrew. But another pleasant surprise was the Encyclopedia Britannica. I was like, usually they put a lot of liberal nonsense in there where you're like, I don't even know if these people are going to define words correctly, right? Let alone something about God. But they were surprisingly accurate about Yahweh. So it says here, Yahweh is the name of the God of the Israelites, mm -hmm. representing the biblical pronunciation 
of the Hebrew name revealed to Moses in the book of Exodus. The name Yahweh, consisting of the sequence of consonants, yod Hey vav is known as the Tetragrammaton. So yod Hey vav appears over 7,000 times in the English Bible. Okay, and it's always a reference to Yahweh. It's Lord in all caps, right? So when we say it, Yahweh is how you're supposed to pronounce it, right? We don't just say Yahweh, right? But it's Yahweh is how you're supposed to say it. So simply put, the name of God is who he is. yod heh means I am who I am. That's what he told Moses in Exodus 3.14. That God is transcendent. Transcendent. That word transcendent or limitless. Limitless. It's like I can run out that door, but I'm going to need some assistance if I keep running after one. I'm going to have an asthma attack or something like that, right? It's like when Jesus ascended in Acts 1, you know, a lot of unbelievers say, well, how did he go out into the atmosphere without being destroyed? Because God is transcendent. He's limitless, okay? He's limitless. He's from everlasting to everlasting. As Jesus told the Jews in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am, ego emi in the Greek. They looked at that and was like, well, wait a minute, man. You ain't but 50 years old and you've seen our father Abraham? He was like, well, before Abraham even existed, I am, I was. He was proclaiming the title of God that I'm above all of that. And, and what did, what do the Jews respond with? Stones. They knew what he was saying. They're like, oh, this man's saying he's God. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. No, it isn't because Jesus is God. And so the name of God is being, has been made great in this world already. And it's continuing to be made great. So let us look at Malachi chapter 1. It's one of my favorite verses uh, about how the name of God is being made great. Malachi chapter 1, and look in verse 11. So this is a really good reference. Uh, it's a kingdom passage, a kingdom prophecy here, because we're living in the kingdom age. I know people say, well, it's the church age. Well, the church is the kingdom. We're living in the kingdom age right now. Why? Because the king has come. From the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi's prophecy captures the image of Gentile nations from all over the world, recognizing God's name and how great it is and worshiping him. In Psalm 8.1, the psalmist says here the same thing that Malachi is saying. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. So think about that. These holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit is what Peter said, right? Um, and they declared that a time would come that the name of God would be great in the earth and his excellence and his glory would be set above the heavens. So, beloved, as God's people, as his church, God has done this. 
since he came and tabernacled among us, since he pitched his tent among us, since the incarnation, and he's still doing it today. Philippians 2 says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name of God is above every name. It's above every name. There's no name greater than the name Jesus Christ. In heaven, on earth, or in hell. And we need to pray that God would use us to declare his name, this great name of his, as hagiazo, as holy, as other, as set apart from sinners. We need to pray that God would make his great name known through us in this time that he's appointed. God has commanded his church to glorify him. You think about that. All the difficulties we go through in life, where we're battling it out, if it's not with our spouse, it's with our kids. If it's not with our spouse and our kids, it's with our flesh. If it's not with our flesh, it's with a family member. It's something. It's something. God has ordained these things. And trials, God is the God of trials. He is sovereign over these trials. He brings them into our lives to sanctify us so that we'll be more like Christ. And they don't always feel good, do they? But you think about that. When God does these things, it's not like God just saves us and then that's it. No, God is our savior, not just from sin, from the power of sin, but from the penalty of sin and from even things that we go through in the world, right? It's like we can't just see the, the problem with the social gospel and the woke movement is they want to make God just about a God of circumstances. They don't want to deal with sin. They don't want to deal with righteousness. They don't want to deal with judgment to come. They just want to say, well, God just helps us overcome these things in life. Well, that's true, but that's not all he does, right? We need God as Savior to atone for us, right? So in Psalm 50, 15, it says, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. God brings these things into our life to turn them into a testimony so that we can pro further proclaim Christ. And he also delivers us out of trouble when he turns these things into these proclamations. God did this in my life. God did this in their life. It all points back to him and brings him glory. And so we should tell of this as our witness of Christ about the work of God. Notice how when the psalmist says we call on God and he answers in deliverance, the word sozo, salvation, it means deliverance. Deliverance is from the Lord. Deliverance from what? From judgment. Why? Because you're a sinner, just like me. You've broken God's law, and on the day of judgment, you're going to be delivered if you're in Christ. Hey, that's a testimony in and of itself. But when God delivers you out of situations in life, you turn around and give credit where credit is due. Give honor where honor is due. This is glorifying to him. Psalm 67, 2 and 3, another catechism verse here. It says that your way may be known on earth, 
your salvation among the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. This psalm, like many others, is a prophetic kingdom psalm that brings us to an expression of praise to God known as doxology. Okay, Doxology is how we express our praise to God. If you want to know the doxology in this church, it's an A+. You want to know the doxology in some other churches? Can't even give it a Z. It's so bad. Okay? Doxology. Bad theology leads to bad doxology. If you don't have good theology, you're not going to arrange the praise and your expression towards God is going to be all the way off. Okay? We praise the Lord because the Lord is holy and there's none like him. Okay? If you start there and you end there, you'll be fine. We praise the Lord because he's already done great things. He already did great things before we even came into this world. He did great things. And he's going to continue to do great things. Okay, we praise the Lord because like in 1 Timothy 1.17, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, this is what forms the doxological nature of which we worship. Remember, it's how we express our praise to God. Okay, more on that in a minute. But Psalm 67, 2 and 3 is ripe with, type, with the typological nature of the Old Testament and New Testament contrast that we see that unifies the scriptures. Remember, a type deals with symbolism. A quick type, Jesus is a lamb. Is he actually an animal? No, Jesus was a sacrifice for our sins, okay? He is the fulfillment of the lambs that were slain in the Old Testament. That is the type. So Christ is the anti-type of the type. The symbol is the type. Christ is the fulfillment, okay? So the anti-type is the fulfillment or the reality of the symbol, okay? So when you look at Old Testament types, and then you see New Testament realities, okay? That's what type and anti-type means. It's really important that we understand that or else you wouldn't really understand a lot that when we're reading our Bibles. Okay, and this is the working out of the name of God being elevated throughout redemptive history. Remember, everything he does, he does for a purpose. When we declare God, we're declaring all of who God is, all of who he is, his attributes, omnipotence. Who knows what that means? All Powerful, omniscience, all-knowing. All Think about that. Omni-science. What is science? It's knowledge. Okay, we just learned a lot of bad science recently, right? Omniscience, omni-science. He's all-knowing. Omnipresence. God is everywhere. He's love. He's immutable. That means he doesn't change. Now, one of the ones that I noticed when I was studying this is when they say omnibenevolent. That's a no-no. That's a no-no, because if God was omnibenevolent, there's no such thing as hell. God is not just all gracious. He's holy. He's holy. He's also just. He's also just. So omnibenevolence, you need to throw that one out of your attributes of God. He's good. He's sunum bonum in Latin. That's the highest form of good. There's no good that's higher than God. He's wise, he's righteous, he's faithful. His decrees and his foreknowledge, which are intricately connected to his sovereignty. OK, 
Okay, God doesn't just know the future. God knows what he is doing in the future. That's why in Acts 15, 18, it says known to God from eternity are all his works. Transcendent. We talked about that earlier. Okay, that's his limitless. He's limitless. Okay, and his holiness and his transcendence are probably the ones that go at the top of the umbrella, I would say. So this is a big theme throughout the Bible, right? This is who God is. And so when we remember as we pray, we're petitioning God to make him known. We want to see, we have a heart for people who are lost. And those are all great things, but we should not put the cart before the horse. When we go out and we preach the gospel, people ask me, well, why would you preach the gospel if God has already chosen who's saved? Well, because God has told me, Jesus said, if you love me, then keep what? My commandments. And they won't be burdensome to you. You're going to want to do them, right? He said, love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So we start saying, well, I'm preaching the gospel because I want to see people saved. Well, that's good. But that you got to love God first. So whether people get saved or not, preach the gospel, <laughs> right? You're loving your neighbor after you're loving God because you already love yourself, okay? And some people struggle with loving themselves, so I'm not saying that everybody automatically does. But when we petition God, we have to remember that this proclamation of let your name be declared as holy is one that is not just for God's chosen, but it's also for those who hate God. It's also for those who hate God. And what do I mean by that? God's glorifying himself, right? Not Romans 9 says, for the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all of the earth. So the entire purpose that God created Pharaoh was to lift up the name of Yahweh to show his power in the ruin of Pharaoh, to carry his great name through the earth so that when Pharaoh was destroyed, people would turn around and say, look at what God did in delivering his people. This man stood in the way and God destroyed him. So the decree of God was to make Pharaoh a vessel of wrath. And I know that's such a hard pill to swallow, but you know what? He's God. He said, all souls are mine, saith the Lord. All souls are mine. He left him to suffer the just punishment of his sins because he thought God was playing around with him. Okay? God was not playing around with him. When he delivered his people, he turned him into what? Fish food. He wasn't playing with that man. He hardened him for his glory. Psalm 76.10, surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath shall thou restrain. That's some heavy stuff. The wrath of man shall praise God. And God is going to restrain the remainder of that wrath. Pharaoh wasn't the only one. Every judgment that we see on this earth is the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, his sovereign will. As Jude said about the flood, God wiped out the entire earth and saved eight people. You think he was playing? He was not playing around. God is holy. 
So when we say, let his name be declared as holy, we need to understand what we're saying. We need to take sin serious, our own sin. And then we're proclaiming God. Remember that those people have a reckoning one day. It's either going to be at the cross or they're going to pay for their own sins. It's not both. It's not Jesus paid for your sins and then you're going to pay for your sins. No, either Christ paid for your sins or you are going to be judged and go to hell. It's that simple. So when Jude, why did God wipe out the earth? He said in Jude, as an example to those who would live ungodly afterwards. God made an example by destroying the entire planet. And then people laugh and mock him. Me and Greg talk about this all the time. These people on these groups are like, ha ha, you and your unicorn God. I say, well, you know, you think that's funny. But you're storing up wrath for yourself right now. This is not a game. And you know, God has told you in Hebrews 9, it is appointed unto man once to die. Appointed, that means predetermined. The day you die, God has fixed it. And when you die, there's going to be a payday. There's going to be a payday. And if you don't have Christ, you're finished. Forever. I fear that many people in this world, world don't understand that God is holy. Even my loved ones, they laugh and they mock and they have a good time. God is holy. And he's going to judge you by his law. In his book, The Attributes of God, A.W. Pink said, with regard to the decree of God and his purpose or determination, that means what he's predetermined, with respect to future things, he's saying that God has decreed everything that comes to pass. And so when we think about that, the moment in time that we preach God's holiness to somebody, that's ordained. And the moment that they repent, that's ordained. The moment that the other sinner doesn't repent, that's ordained also. Everything that comes to pass. Like the London Baptist Confession says in its opening statement, God sovereignly and unchangeably decrees whatsoever comes to pass. Why? Because he's God. If he decrees that somebody dies in a car accident and they die and go to hell and their whole family perishes with them, guess what? God is good. He hasn't done anything wrong to that person. What did he really owe them? What does he owe me? What does he owe me? You know how many car accidents I could have died in before I met my wife and, and, and got introduced to the things of God? What does he owe me? I was talking to a brother um, earlier today and um, Joseph was talking, telling me about his mom and how he cherishes his mom and she's 91 and Almost lost it to a heart attack. And I said, brother, you know, you're blessed. I haven't, I haven't seen or heard my mom's voice in almost 25 years. You start to forget things, right? Did God do something wrong by taking my parents away from me at an early age? No, no. He said that he is the giver and taker of life, okay? Now, did that feel good to me? No, it didn't. Do I still grieve over that? Yes, I do. But do I blame God? No, I can't. Am I tempted to blame God for things that come into my life? Absolutely, I am. Are there times that I want to, but just don't say it because I know better? Absolutely. What did J.C. Ross say? 
The most offensive doctrine in all of the Bible is the sovereignty of God. It's the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign and he's sovereign over his name. So when we declare the holiness of God, we're declaring all of his counsel, all that he's done, all who he is. And I love the mission of R.C. Sproul's ministry. When he said this before he went home to be with the Lord, or this was on his radio show. I know Jeff's a big follower of that. I love uh, Ligonier. It says the purpose here at Ligonier is to awaken as many people as possible to the holiness of God. They're there to glorify God. Sproul spent his whole life glorifying God. Okay. And can't imagine the rewards that brother is in right now and the glory. It's a good desire for us to want to awaken as many people as possible to the holiness of God because he has made us, not ourselves. We're his work. So when we proclaim his mercy and his, his promises, all of this is interconnected to his name, that he's accomplished salvation for his people. And may we never presume upon the grace of God. I, I hear people all the time, I've been coming to this church for 30 years. Not this church, but I hear people say it, and I'm sure people say it here too. I've been doing this for this amount of time, or that amount of time. Okay, that's great. Don't mean that's what you're going to be doing tomorrow or next week. People fall. People fall into sin. People fall from grace. And you know what? You can't presume upon the grace of God. So a lot of times there's people, I look back there and see Greg back there. There's a lot of people we started with that we did not finish with. You know, we have great hope though, because I have hope that tomorrow is Jesus who holds me, not me who's holding on to Jesus. Okay. No one can pluck us out of our father's hand, even if we did fall into sin. Okay. For truly belong to God, no one can pluck us out of his hand. Okay, and that should cause us to be thankful. And we should look to God and say, Lord, humble me. Just because you've used me in the past doesn't mean you're going to use me in the future. Lord, be kind to us. That should be our prayer, that we could proclaim your grace to other sinners. And let us remember ourselves to walk in that grace. Okay, a lot of times we get longer, we've been in the faith, we get puffed up. And we get to talking about somebody else. Ooh, look at them, how they did that. <laughs> Excuse me? Who am I? <laughs> Who am I? Who are you? If anyone thinks of himself to be something when he is nothing, he glorifies himself? Partly. No, he deceives himself. Okay, we're nothing without Christ. So we need his grace to proclaim his holiness. We need to remember that grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. So a great quote from scripture, and this one, remember when I first started embracing the doctrines of grace, this was, this was a, a quote that offended me. <laughs> Even as a Calvinist, this offended me, okay? George Whitfield said about the sovereign grace of God, we should meditate on this. He said, if God is not glorified in your salvation, he will be glorified in your destruction, I'll say that again. If God is not glorified in your salvation, he will be glorified in your destruction. It strikes at the heart of the catechism that God is holy and that when we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. 
should humble us and really bring us to our knees on our face that God was pleased to have mercy on us and not to destroy us. God could have easily been pleased in his justice to destroy us. So when we come into his presence, it needs to be with thanksgiving and praise, remembering the name of God as we proclaim it. Psalm 83, and I'm going to speed through this. Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. And do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult. And those who hate you, you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. They have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites. Gibal, Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia and the, with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria has also joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot, Selah, deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera, as with Jebon at the brook of Kishon, who perished at Endor, who became a refuse on the earth. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Yes, all their princes like Ziba and Zalumna, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God as a possession. Oh, my God, make them like the whirling dust, like a shaft as before the wind, as the fire burns the wood and as the flame sets mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and frighten them with your storm. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and dismayed forever. Yes, let them be put to shame and perish that they may know that you, whose name alone is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. So Psalm 83, 18 verses. It's not some futuristic psalm about some time when some missiles are going to come at Israel and then there's going to be a tribulation and all. It's not any of that. It's not any of that. It's a, it's a collection of 12 Psalms of Asaph from the original, from the Masoretic text and the Septuagint it's in. And some of these Psalms of Asaph involve some of the deepest theological positions that there are that involve life after death in the Old Testament, especially Psalm 49. If you really want to know how to witness to a JW when they come to your house telling you soul sleep and there's no hell, go look at the Psalms of Asaph, Psalm 49, okay? Talks about the soul going to Sheol. Ask a JW to explain that one to you. Or a Jew. They can't. They can't. So these, these psalms should be deeply studied as an arsenal for our apologetics to defend that the Bible does teach life after death in the Old Testament. A lot of people say, no, it doesn't. You only see that stuff in the New Testament. I've even heard Christians say that. I'm like, no, you're wrong. It does. It does. And a lot of these psalms are messianic. And we run into these common objections from people who, who don't believe. But hell in the Old Testament is clear. It's taught. Everlasting torment. Okay, why else would a soul go to the grave? A soul metaphysically is immaterial. It's going to go to a material grave? Think about that. That doesn't even make sense, right? It does if you understand that that soul is in existence after that person perishes, which we know. 
So like I said, sadly, most Christians who look at even the Messianic Psalms, they don't even believe that Christ is reigning now. They believe that he's going to reign when he comes back. That's not true. Jesus has took the throne of David in Acts chapter 2 when he ascended. He's reigning now. When John the Baptist came and said the kingdom of God is at hand. It's because the king is here. Okay? And so what was John regarding about God? That his name would be what? Declared right. Except for when he fell into that trial, he said, what? Are you the one or do we wait for another? So we need God's mercy to keep on this path. This particular psalm was also written in the reign of King Jehoshaphat, who's a godly man who was committed to the glory of God, who wanted to see God's name regarded as holy. This was evident through his actions, through his reign. And the descriptions of these military campaigns he was involved in, there was a plea to God for deliverance. We see that typologically, and I want us to think about that today. Okay, we're in an army here today in this room, the army of God. We're soldiers for Christ. Okay, the only difference is the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So in verses four through eight, the plan of, of God or the plan of God's enemies, enemies was to wipe out Israel. And they made this coalition that was working together to accomplish their wicked, wicked plans. In verses nine through 12, the plot thickens and God's elect had this prayer specifically calling on God to judge his enemies and how he had judged accordingly their enemies in the past. And we see that God has been faithful in preserving and expanding his church, even in the Old Testament. And then in verses 13 through 18, we see the prayer continuing for God to make an example out of those who are committed to annihilating the people of God and his name. They want to eradicate it. Let, let the name of Israel be no more. There's people today who want to wipe out the church. Okay. And they even say it on Twitter. They say it. And it's amazing. It's amazing to me. People actually want us gone. You know, I've heard people say the world would be a better place if we didn't have religion, if we didn't have Christians in it. That's, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? Verses 16 and 17 is a call for God to put them to shame, that they would seek God's name. And then culminating with verse 18, it says that they may know that you, whose name alone is Lord, are the most high over all the earth. We see a pattern here. God's name is to be lifted up high high okay when we take that banner of christ we are to take it to the top of the mountain and stamp it into that mountain and claim this belongs to god we are to live and exist for christ and his covenant this final catechism verse here is romans eleven thirty six. it says for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever again this is doxology here this is how we, to, how we are to arrange our praise to God. And most commentators who agree that this is doxology believe that it's simply communicating the adoration of God because of his sovereign work. Remember, Romans 11 is the tree of Israel and Gentiles, right? And very complex passage to interpret. But I would say that this is also an expression of God's faithfulness in the Trinitarian work of the covenant of redemption, fulfilling the kingdom prophecies. Now, what is the covenant of redemption? In eternity past, God the Father gave God the Son a people. And Jesus went to the cross to purchase us for God. Obviously, the Spirit was involved in that. The Spirit is the one who regenerates. So, And when you look at this verse, it actually, I believe, I'm on some other scholars' uh, side that 
believe this is Trinitarian in nature. So when I look at the three hymns behind this, of him would represent the work of the Father in election. Through him is the work of the Spirit in regeneration that takes place when the Spirit comes upon the dead sinner and raises them to life, causing them to be born again. And to him would be a reference to the work that is given to the Lord Jesus to go to the cross to live a perfect life by whom atonement is made for us. So we bring this to a close here. A time that God prophesied that he would penetrate all other kingdoms. And to me, this is a really big encouragement. Every time I get down, when I see things not going right, I look at these passages and it just the Lord just does something where. You know, there's power. It's not like we just have this big motivational speech. God lives in us and he pours power into us through his spirit. So it says here in Daniel 7, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came in the ancient of days and they brought him near. And then dominion was given to him and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. What is that kingdom? Is it one we're waiting for? No, it's the one that John the Baptist, John the Baptist proclaimed when the king came. It's the one that is now. It's the one that was back then. It's the one that God's name was being declared as holy by the apostles. And for the last 2000 years and beyond God's name, has been declared as holy. So when we pray this prayer, it's like, God, please be pleased in Christ to include me in that. And how do I know that this is, isn't my opinion? Well, Revelation 11, when John was written, locked up on Patmos, he said this in verse 15. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. He didn't notice how he didn't say they shall become. He said they have become. Why? Because God is getting his glory out of the world that he created. That's why he created it. And as his sovereign rule over us as king, we need to understand in Amos 1, it says, he said that the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Just as the Lord roared in the Old Testament amongst his Old Testament church, his covenant people, the Lord is roaring here today in the lives of his church and throughout the world. Wherever the gospel is preached and proclaimed, wherever our faith is being lived out, God is roaring from Zion. And you know where Zion is? It's not in the Middle East. Okay, typologically, this is Zion. This is Jacob. We are God's people. Okay, and anyone who's in Christ is a part of Jacob. So I'll end with this. Psalm 46 says this, and this was a prayer, but I want us to understand that this was also a prophecy. In Psalm 46, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, Though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. 
She shall not be moved. God shall help her. Just at the break of dawn, the nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come and see. Behold, the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Remember how I said who Jacob was? It's us. That's why we can pray this prayer. Because the psalmist looked forward to a time when God would be elevated in the earth. And anytime you're proclaiming Christ, you are elevating God. You are elevating God. So this is God keeping his promises. He promised this and it's come to pass and it's continually coming to pass. God answers us. Why? Because he is our refuge. He is our help in times of trouble. He is in our midst. He is rattling and subduing kingdoms as we speak. We always look in this world and we say, man, what's going on over here? We got the virus. We got wars. We got this. We got that. God is at work. That's what's going on over here. He's with us. He makes desolations in the earth and he causes wars to cease. We can be still and know that he is God. He is being exalted among the heathen and he will be exalted in this earth. Like I said, church, we are Jacob. Remember the God of Jacob is with us as he declares through his church that his name is holy. Yeah. All right. So I'll take questions if you have any or comments. Speaking for all of us. Shameful. Yeah. Um, to just fall so short. Well, so wrapped up in my life. And, yeah. Uh, you know, even, you know, I'm grateful for the fellowship that we have. I'm grateful for the body. And if, and if it weren't for the body, I would, you know, have even lesser <clears throat> desire uh, to praise God's name. But um, even with the, the fellowship and the encouragement and the edification, um, I just feel like I fall so short. That's a good place to be, brother. I mean, I feel the same way. And 
I'm grateful for all you brothers because, you know, we don't know every dirty detail of what sin we're battling or what we're struggling with. But when we come and see each other on a regular basis, there are times when, you know, I was telling my son this. I was like, well, you know, when I wrestle with you to go to church sometimes, don't think that I don't wrestle with my own flesh and my own ignorance. And I know better than you do. And you're still learning. But guess what? So am I. So am I. Why do I always have to bang my head against the wall and struggle with the same sins over and over? Well, we sin because we're sinners, right? We're rotten. We're depraved. And I was talking with Nick about this the other day. It sure does give perspective and hope that God who lives in us is greater than our sin, right? If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our sin who knows all things, right? And where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So we, we should look at those things and our failures and be reminded to look to God, look to Christ. You know, there aren't, there's times when I want to proclaim God's name and God will shut my mouth just because of all the shamefulness and all the sin that I may have been living in. I feel like, well, I can't say that to those people. Look what I just got through confessing, right? But that's the enemy. That's my flesh. You know, I was going to put a section in here about our adversary, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil is real. And for us, this flesh is with me everywhere, right? Like David said, my sin is always before me. So it is a battle. We do fall short, but we can be encouraged that God is faithful to us, right? And he, he will bless our feeble efforts because he's promised to, right? And so if we look to ourselves, it should look pretty hopeless, Ross, you know? That's how it's supposed to look, man. And, and unfortunately, we have to learn that lesson over and over again. And, and the vain things and the vain glory that we tend to set ourselves up with. Yeah, and, and, and just to be clear, it's, it's not uh, just when I might be uh, contemplating my sin or being in sin. I'm talking about when my halo is at its brightest. Yeah. When I'm doing the best <laughs> I've ever done in my life. Yeah, it's still not and good I enough. I still feel falling so short. And yeah. let that translate into wonder, brother. You know, like the wonder of the love of God. Amen. Uh, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Amen. Just the appreciation. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel defeat because of who God is. Not yes. because of who I am, but because of who God is. I don't feel defeated, but it's just, it's, it is wondrous when you think about what's being said um, our father in heaven hallowed be your name it's, it's a wonder there was a passage that I was looking for um, that um, no there's a verse you know when it says uh, when you when we have done all these things we will say we are unprofitable servants right for we have done, it was our duty to do the things that we did, right? So I think even when you're hot, like, like Nick said, let it turn into awe and amazement and wonder that why would, why would God use someone as rotten and as pitiful? And this is the best I have to offer. Well, that should bring us to that humble place where we've done all these things. We should say that we're still unprofitable servants, right? For it was our duty to do these things because our best for God still falls short. Actually, it's a corollary to what I'm saying, what you're saying there, that even, you know, when we're out there 
uh, doing the works of God that flow naturally from our salvation and being indwelt by the Spirit, mm -hmm. we still might have a tendency in these works to think about the good things that I am doing, and I'm not thinking about um, what I'm doing is to bring glory to God. Yeah. We're, bring, we're bringing glory to ourselves. Of course. Maybe a little bit too much, uh, more more than we than we should be or could be, maybe a lot. Well, because that our works ought to be to the glory of God. I think what you're saying is vital because which we don't meditate often on why we do what we do, right? And so when we go through life and we do things, it kind of feels good to get a pat on the back and to lift ourselves up because elevating ourselves, um, it's sinful. I think there's a verse that talks about that when we, you know, rob God or when we get glory, it's not really glory, right? Because we're like the flower we're and like the grass, we're going to pass away. So it, it's hard to, to miss out on intent. We just go through the motions and doing things and we don't stop and ask ourselves, well, am I really doing this, Lord? I think it's why it's good to make it a good practice to stop and pray when we're doing good works for the Lord, no matter what it is, to say, Lord, thank you that you've worked this into my heart and I'm doing this for you, Lord Jesus. Because no matter what the result is, if someone slings manure on us, it doesn't matter if we did it for Christ, right? And I, I was thinking about that. Me and my kids have been memorizing John um, when it talks about uh, the one who's doing his works in the open, um, after it talks about men love the darkness because their deeds are evil, but it says that he who does his works um, in the light comes to the open, that his works may clearly be seen because they have been done in God. That hit me hard, like, man, that's intent right there. You're doing that in Christ. See, we do things because we want to have the praise of men. I said this the other day when I was hanging out with Stu. You know, so I said, I, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Pharisee. You're a Pharisee. Everybody has, so when we read this stuff, we shouldn't be like, oh, those bad people over there. That's you. <laughs> and that's me apart from Christ. You know, when we read that stuff, we better remember. I remember way when I first got saved, be like, man, Israel's off the hook. And then I just get this small thought in my head. You are them, right? So, I don't know, brother. Intent is good. Stopping and praying. Like the psalmist says, Selah, pause, meditate. Think about why you're doing what you're doing. You know? It's good to go up to the house of the Lord, right? You know, so why am I going to the house of the Lord? You know, what did he do? Why do I want to keep coming to this place? Just so I could see Sam every week, right? Right, Sam? We gotta meditate on why we do what we do. So Yeah, it is it is humbling, so that's all I can say to Yeah, I mean think about like the name and how the name of God is sometimes like misused superficially. Like I've 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 heard people saying like you gotta pray in the name of the Lord and when you pray in the name a special way then you're gonna get what you want and you know what I mean I, it just makes me makes me cringe. Mm. A little bit because it's almost like uh, I mean, back in the '80s, if you had a really nice car, 
you had to worry about somebody coming along and prying off your Mercedes Benz emblem. Yeah. And they would take that emblem and they would stick it on the Honda or the Nissan that they're driving. <laughs> it's like having the name on your car doesn't make that car a Mercedes. It doesn't make. It's like you can't just slap a the label Christian on something or say in the name of the Lord and then if it's not actually of the Lord, that doesn't give it value. Yeah. But that's part of the wonder, I think. Um, Ross that keeps us from being crushed under the weight of the name of God is that he gives he gives us the honor to bear his name because he's doing a transformational work from the inside out mm. that's making us not the sinner we were before. Amen. It's changing us and transforming us in such a fundamental level. That Part of that wonder is that we can bear that name and not be in error to bear the name, you know, because he has called us his own and he's brought us into his family. So there, that's where the that, that kind of like, I feel ashamed that I'm not worried of it, but then I remember he's the one who's putting that name upon me. He is mm-hmm. making me worthy by the blood of the Lamb. And then that wonder really blooms. You know? Amen. Well, that's important. I think it goes back to intent, right? I mean, if we don't look at God, it's he's the one who's worthy, right? It's not me. It's not you. It's not, you know, it's just so easy to fall away from that and go through our normal routine and not, not stop and meditate on those things, right? And then the further and further we go along, then we have to, you know, be reminded that much more, right? But if you're stopping along the way as you pray, I think it's good to acknowledge God that it's Him. You know, like that verse when it says, it's not Galatians 2, when it says, it is God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure, you know, sometimes just stop and thank the Lord. Lord, thank you for being at work in me. You know, just something as simple. I run out the house, forgot my keys in my wallet, remember to go back and get it. God is sovereign even over stuff like that, right? And so when we do good things for the Lord, we should acknowledge him. Thank you, Lord, for working good in me. You know, because apart from you, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm nothing. I'm not good. I'm evil. So that's can, good. Uh, corroborate your example there, Nick. I had a 1981, I had a beater Dodge Omni, and my friend had a BMW. He got in an accident, and the, the two loops on the front grill fell off, and he didn't want them. He gave them to me. I used some nine wire and put it on front of my. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Dodge Omni. Well, it's half a second, a quarter mile from that. Month. Probably for letting it go, letting off that weight, huh? Any other comments or questions anyone want to add? Or? Yeah, Fred. I understand that, you know, I mean, Zion has been used in a lot of terms, obviously, for, uh, you know, the, the movement for Israel. But I didn't understand what you said, like, we're like the Zion or what? So if you go to Hebrews, I'll read you the passage. Um, if you would have hung out a little longer, Fred, you would have heard me and Jim used to argue over this all the time in Heritage. So Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 right here. Um, let's see. Verse 23, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church, of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, 
to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkling, to the blood sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So if you look at the flow of this verse here, when it says you have come, so the contrast was they were shaking about when Moses had brought down the law, right? So if you go back to verse 18, he says, you have not come to the mountain that can be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and the darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who begged, who heard it begged that they, that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it should be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. So he's saying, you've not come to that mountain. Talk about Sinai, physical mountain. the physical mountain. Yeah. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Now, what is that? The heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. So the contrast between, I was talking about typology. So the type or symbol of the Old Testament would have been that physical mountain. The antitype is the church, the Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. So I used to ask Jim all the time, so what is this? And he would always say, well, this is, What's going to happen when Jesus comes back? I said, no, 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 man. This ain't talking nothing about to do with the second coming of Christ. It's making a contrast between old covenant, the old covenant mountain and the new covenant, which is the church, Mount Zion. So again, when I kept saying the church is Jacob, you know, Jacob is Israel, right? And the church is Israel. Church is the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. So I think that's the problem as Christians we know there's only two people in the world. There are those who are outside of Christ, who are in Adam, they're fallen. And there are those who are in Christ, the second Adam, who are redeemed. So there's only two kinds of people, believers and unbelievers, right? So if you're a believer, you're part of Zion, you're Jacob, you're true Israel, right? Romans 2.27 says he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward that is in the flesh, but he's a Jew who's one inwardly who's had his heart circumcised, whose praise is not from men, but from God, right? So you're a true Jew, just like I'm a true Jew, right? And it has nothing to do with physical ethnicity. He's talking about the spirit. So yeah, that's a good question. That's always one that um, is tricky for most Christians, I think, because we've been taught dispensationalism our entire lives, that the church and Israel are separate. So good question. All right, anybody else? Going once, going twice. Sold. All right. Thank you, John. Praise the Lord. Well, praise the Lord.